seeking to seize, seeking to seize and kill. John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you'll sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, whatever we read here as happening to Christ, may we also understand that he did this on our behalf to save us from our sins and also to lead us by example that we might be prepared to experience the same. In the name of Christ, amen. In this section of John 11, the people, including the leadership, are continually seeking to undermine Christ. We saw in verses 47 to 53 that they convened their council, their Sanhedrin, the council of religious leaders of the nation who were the teachers of the people, the authorities and the final word of the people in order for them as a council to conspire and to find a way to capture Christ and kill him. Capture and kill. Seize and then slay Christ. To put him into the hands of the Romans that the Romans might put Christ to death. They even had Caiaphas, the high priest, who prophesied not of his own initiative, but by God's will. He prophesied that it would be beneficial if Christ died for the people, to gather into one the children of God, into one nation, a redeemed nation. He prophesied that in verses 49 to 50. And John the Apostle explained what he meant in 51 to 52. Not actually what Caiaphas believed, but what he said and what was the true meaning of Caiaphas' words. Those are explained in 51 to 52. However, stunningly, amazingly, we find that they don't believe that prophecy. They reject the prophecy 
the application of the prophecy to themselves. They reject believing in that prophecy and they persist in their desire to put Christ to death. Verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Instead of embracing that truth, receiving that truth into their heart for their salvation, they instead repelled it, they were repulsed by it, they rejected it, and then want to kill him. This we find continuing in 54 to 57. This passage we have today is also the end of Jesus' public ministry. In John, in the book of John, from chapters 1 to 11, first we have John, John the Baptist, preaching about the coming of Christ. And then we have Christ in his public ministry from chapter 2 onwards, towards the end of chapter 1, but especially from chapter 2 onwards, to this chapter, his public ministry. Then he's going to enter Jerusalem in the next chapter, but it's not in this chapter going to be filled with a lot of teaching. There is some teaching in the last half of the chapter, but it's not in the way of it being in the previous ones. Then by chapter 13, exclusively 13 to 17, it's going to be private discourses between Christ and his apostles, his 12 apostles. He'll be arrested in 18, crucified in 19, and then raised from the dead in 20 to 21. John then is treating the last of the major miracles of Christ here in this chapter and the aftermath of that here in this chapter. What is it that the people, especially the religious leaders, do with Christ? We find out here in 54 to 57. Their persistent attitude and then Jesus' response to that here in 54 to 57. They want to seize him to slay him. 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. Therefore, why? Because of 53. He knew that their counsel's intention was to put him to death. They wanted to kill him, so he didn't walk publicly. He knew that they were on the verge of doing it, Eventually they will, and he will let them do it, and the Father will let them do it in chapter 18, but not right now. Because this Passover has to be celebrated, and certain events must happen leading up to his ultimate arrest in the providence of God. Whenever God wills for it, but meantime in 54, he didn't walk publicly. He avoided death, he avoided persecution, He went away from the Jews. Why? And or where did he go? Verse 54 says, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. He didn't stay near Jerusalem. Remember, just a couple of miles away was this place, Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus up from the dead. It was just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. Since Lazarus was becoming a liability in the sense that the people, the Jews, wanted to find Lazarus and kill him, 
and also find Jesus and kill him, Jesus went farther away from Jerusalem until the time he would return to Jerusalem for the Passover festival and then be arrested and crucified. Meantime, where does he go? He goes to the country near the wilderness, to this city called Ephraim. He went away to the country, away from the city. Why? Because the metropolis is in the city. The people are in the city. And the Passover is imminent. It's about to happen. And at that time, many people would come to the city. So it would be um, populous during the festival. So he's trying to, at, at, the, at this time, stay away from the people. He goes to the country and then the wilderness also, where not very many people live. He's going to the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. This city is not a well-known city. It is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 13, 19 with a different spelling. And often cities and names have variations of spelling. In 2 Chronicles 13, 19, the city is mentioned. It's not the tribe of Ephraim, nor is it the patriarch Ephraim. Of course, he says here, a city called Ephraim. It was a small city in the wilderness known by the name Ephraim. And we should not be surprised by that, that the patriarch, the tribe, and now this small city is called Ephraim. In the United States, for example, we have New York New York, New York City in New York State. We have Oklahoma City in the state of Oklahoma. And many such things happen, not only in the United States, but in Israel and around the world. That's what John is describing. He's saying that he went to this obscure small city, town, or village in order to avoid the crowds, and especially to avoid being arrested prematurely. But what does he do? He stayed with the disciples. He stayed with the disciples. When he stays with them, he doesn't stay with them usually. We don't ever read this, that Jesus stayed with the disciples to go on vacation with them. He didn't stay with the disciples to play ball with them. He didn't stay with the disciples to do things that we might want to do or think that he would, want, would do with the disciples. But what did he do? He would counsel them. He would teach them. He would encourage them. He would warn them. He would tell them of things to come. This is why he would stay with the disciples because they needed to be strengthened in their faith because their faith is about to be shaken, greatly shaken. They are about to flee from Christ. They are about to be terrified that not only did the Romans crucify Christ, but they also might be crucified by the Romans. I'm sorry, Christ was crucified by the Romans. They also, the disciples, might be crucified by the Romans. They would be terrified. So he stays with them to encourage them in the things of God. Remember, did you not know that I had to be about the things of my father? He told his parents in Luke 2, 50 to 52. He was always about the will of his father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. John 4, 34. Then 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover of the Jews at hand. Near, just in a few more days. It's coming, imminently coming. This would mean that it's springtime, or we would have to say sometime in the month of March. Technically, not spring, but generally speaking, springtime in March. Um, unless in this year, it happened to be after the change of the seasons, which often happens in the third week of March, because sometimes the Passover is in late March or very early April. It would have been at that time of the year. At that time of the year, it is very convenient for the Passover to be celebrated. This was the time commemorating the exodus of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. This is explained in Exodus 12 and 13. In Exodus 12 and 13, the Passover is explained that it ought to be celebrated by the Jews and it would begin their religious calendar. The political calendar starts in the fall, but the religious cal calendar was changed from the political and religious from the fall to the spring. Political in the fall, now, according to the Exodus of, of Exodus 12, the religious calendar would begin in the spring, usually in the month of March. And the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would take place in a one-week period of time, the Passover in one day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread the next seven days. So during that week, it would be Passover and unleavened bread. The two would be celebrated together. And it would commemorate their departure from Egypt. However, which we will see, we'll see something in the upcoming chapters. This was not merely to commemorate the people leaving Egypt, their redemption out of Egypt, but also it was a prefigurement, it was an illustration of the upcoming redemption in Christ. Such as 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The apostle is meaning that the feast of Passover and unleavened bread are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just as they were expected in those days to remove leaven from their house and not eat leavened or yeast-filled bread during that week. And they were prescribed to perform certain other rituals signifying and symbolizing the coming work of Christ. In the same way, now Christ has come and we ought to seek for purity 
in all things, which is also something they do back in John 11. In John 11:55, it also says that many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They would do ritualistic purification prescribed by Moses in the law of Moses, such as found in Numbers chapter 9, Numbers chapter 9, in reference to touching a corpse, touching a corpse, a dead body, and in reference to physical, personal, bodily fluids and how they make one unclean, such as found in Leviticus chapters 12 to 15, 12, 13, 14, and 15 of the book of Leviticus. These various ways would cause the individual to become impure and an impure, ritualistic impure individual was not supposed to partake of the Passover. So they needed to make sure that ritualistically they were pure before they partook of the Passover. In this way, it's showing that we have to be presentable to God for God to receive us and God does pre- prepare us beforehand to receive Christ. Just as he prepares, he prepared the people in ancient times, he prepares us in the true knowledge of Christ. It is a symbol, it was a symbol of what they needed to do. So, because of this, the people had to arrive in Jerusalem early, and they had to make sure that they followed the rituals in order to be able to participate in the Passover. Further, we read that it was many, verse 55, many. Many came. Who are the many? First, let's emphasize the many. Chapter 12, verse 9, it picks up on the many. 12, 9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews. Chapter 12 and verse 9. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast. Further, 17. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The multitude who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus are also there among the people the multitude who come to celebrate the Passover from the various regions around the land of Israel. But not only the land of Israel, but even from among the people of Israel scattered in other nations and Gentiles who had converted. They would also come to the feast. We see this in chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. There were even Greeks going up to worship at the feast. The Gentiles who had converted, they were practicing the same rituals as the Jews. They also came to the Passover. 
Now, the Passover was one of the festivals, according to Deuteronomy 16. It was one of these festivals of the three festivals that required this, that all the males among the Jews who lived in the land of Israel, not just in Jerusalem, but in the land of Israel and abroad, they were required by the law of Moses to come to this festival. That means that there would have certainly been a great number of men who came to this festival. It was not prohibited for the rest of the family to come, but not necessarily did the rest of the family always come. Some did, some did not. Those who did not, they weren't sinning, they just weren't required to come. So, it would have been the majority men with some women and children comprised in this great multitude in the city at this time. So, when this happens, this is the circumstance. We have a great many people present. 56. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? They, that is the many, 55, they are looking for Jesus. They have heard about him. The most recent occasion for it is Lazarus, but the word of him has spread throughout their nation, throughout the tribes. After all, Jesus went and preached in Samaria and especially in Galilee, correct? And now he's in Judea in the southern part where the capital is, Jerusalem. He's there uh, or near there, a few miles away, more so than he was when he was in Bethany. He's still there and they're looking for him. They expect him to be there. Why do they expect him to be there? For one, he's a man, so he's supposed to be there. Number two, it is one of the great festivals, so they would expect him to be there. Three, he claimed to be Christ, the Messiah. So for that reason, why wouldn't the Christ, the Messiah, show up there? However, they have their doubts. They have their doubts. Why? Because the authorities, the leadership, want, they want to kill him. They want to put him to death. So they wonder if Christ will not come to the feast. Now, since we know, such as Matthew 5, 17 to 20, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and not abolish the law, and Jesus came to do the will of the Father, John 8, 29, doing always those things that please the Father, John 8, 29, that Jesus would never have disobeyed this. We know that he will indeed come. And that will be the time that he is seized, he's arrested, and then he is crucified. We know that that will be the case. But they are in anticipation and wondering. There's a stir uh, going on there. It's buzzing with gossip and rumors as to what is going to happen. 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might 
sees him. He should report it that they might seize him. They want to seize him to kill him. There's nothing new about that. We have seen that from very early, from John chapter 5, 16 to 18, all the way up to John eleven fifty three. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It's been happening again and again. They want to arrest him to put him to death. Not only that, but they gave orders to the people, all, uh, both to themselves, that is, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees are the chief priests, the priests and the Pharisees. These two main groups among them, they gave orders, they issued orders that if any of them or any of the people, the common people, knew where he was and was not on the side of these officials, they would be in trouble. It's not only report where he is so that we might arrest him, but it's also on pain of expulsion, on excommunication. How do we know this? John 9. John 9, 22. John 9, 22 says, His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. The parents did not want to be put out or thrown out of the synagogue, prevented from worshiping with them, with their old friends and whoever else was there. The blind man was put out. 934, they answered and said to him, you were, in, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? They said to him. And they put him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. Chapter 12. 12, 42 to 43. John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They believed in him. The rulers did. Many of them believed in him. They believed he was telling the truth, that he was the Christ. They could give lip service to it, but they couldn't give life service to it because they didn't want to be put out or thrown out of the synagogue because ultimately their greater desire was not the truth, their greater desire was the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Approval of happens to be a translation of the word glory. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. They wanted men to praise them, men to adore them, men to accept them because they would benefit in physical ways. First, in their own heart, they would be flattered. And then secondly, with physical things, material things, because that's what men provide. Whether it's physical safety or physical materials. This is what they wanted. John 16, John 16, 
Jesus says the following, John 16, 1 to 3. 16, 1. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. He tells us in advance that we might be kept from stumbling. Don't be shaken. Don't be traumatized. Don't be anxious. Don't say, oh, what did I do wrong? Oh, this might not be true. Oh, I must, I must somehow curry their favor. We can't do that. He says, if we do that, we are stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. And they will even think that they are offering service to God when they kill us. They could be that blinded. But they don't know God and they don't know Christ. He t teaches us in 16.3. So, this is the scenario we have set before us. Now, we have to ask a few questions. Why is it, why is it that these people, both the leaders and the laity, both those who have authority and those who don't have authority, why is it that people like this, of high rank or low rank, it doesn't matter, why do people despise Jesus? And also, why would they despise us if we follow Jesus? Why? Well, the first reason, the first point to make is that Christ preached against sin. Christ preached against sin. He preached repentance. He exposed people's sins and taught them to repent and believe in the gospel. John 7, 7. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He's telling his unbelieving brothers at the time they were unbelieving that the world can't hate them, but it does hate me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He tells people that they are doing evil. And once they hear those words, that's evil then they rise up against him. The same in John 8, 31. John 8, 31 to 33. John 8, 31 to 33. Jesus, therefore, was saying to, that, to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? And we know further, they accuse him of being a Samaritan, demon-possessed, and finally they want to kill him by throwing stones at him. John 8, John 8, 48 and 8, 59. 8.48 and 59. Demon-possessed, a Samaritan, and they want to stone him to death. Right? Well, what was it that Jesus said to them that made them 
so hateful against him. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Wait, I have to stay in Christ? I have to be faithful to you? And you cannot call me a true disciple unless I am faithful? I am true, though unfaithful. I want to be unfaithful, but I still want to be considered true. That's what's going on in their mind. And then he says in 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, wait a minute, I'm not a slave to anybody, so why are you saying free? He's saying, yes, you are a slave. You are a slave to sin in verse 30, 35 and 30, 34 to 35. And you are a slave to Satan in verse 44. So you are slaves. You're not free. You are in bondage, bondage to sin and Satan. That's what Jesus clearly implied. And they knew that because of the way that the dialogue proceeds. They knew that he was talking like that. Eventually, they do clearly know that he was talking like that and they wanted to kill him. So Jesus preached against sin. He taught them to repent and have true faith in God and produce the fruit of that true faith in God. It is the same with us. We should not think we are any different than they. Let's see a few examples in the book of Acts. A few examples in the book of Acts. The first one is in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In the last half of the chapter, 16 to 34, the Apostle Paul he actually would preach to the people. These are Gentiles or Greeks. These are people who loved to use their mind to think about new things, new philosophies, new religious beliefs, anything new. They were curious like that in a perverse way. Just because it's new, it gets my attention. That's what they wanted. And the Apostle Paul in verses 22 to 31, he actually tells them publicly, these people that he doesn't know, that he has just met, he tells them publicly, you don't know what you're worshiping. You people are ignorant and you need to repent. Didn't he do that? Of course he did. He says in verse 23, what you worship to the unknown God, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He further teaches them they should not be thinking that God can be worshipped with our hands, with the things we use with our hands to give in the temple. God is our creator and we should seek him. We ought not to think that the offspring of God, uh, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Verse 29 Think about this. If you were an idolater, you were a pagan, taking pride in your rituals and the things you do in your shrines and temples, or even in your household shrine, that you take pride in those things, if you were to hear these words, you would be thoroughly offended. Who is this stranger? Who is this stranger who speaks differently than us? Who is he that he has the audacity to come over here and tell me everything I've been doing my whole life is wrong? Well, that's what Paul was doing. He was doing that. And he called them to repent because of the day of judgment and repent and believe in Christ. 
verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Yes, he preached that. Some believed according to 32 to 34, and some didn't believe. Some believed and some did not. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. When he's addressing the Ephesian elders, when he's addressing them, they come to meet him. And when he does meet them, this is what he says he did and what they should do. What he did and what these elders should do. These elders are not apostles. These elders are not Jesus Christ. They are the elders of the church in Ephesus. This is what they should do, just as Paul did. Acts 20, Acts 20, verse 20. Actually, let's begin at 17. We'll read 17 to 21. Acts chapter 20, 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Privately and publicly, with all humility and with tears, in the face of imminent death, the plots of the Jews, this is what he did. He preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to Jews and Greeks. It did not matter what their language was, what their na um, nationality was. It did not matter what their ethnicity was. He preached the same to all. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, we pick it up in verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's innocent of the blood of all because he delivered what they needed to hear. It's easy to serve desserts and sugar. It's harder to serve the vegetables that people don't want to eat. Correct? The vegetables of Scripture are the hard truths that people hate to hear. You are a sinner. You need to repent. A day of judgment is coming. Jesus died on the cross for sinners, but you have to repent and believe in Him to benefit from that. You have to give up what you like. That those are the vegetables of the gospel. But the desserts of the gospel are the love and the grace and the mercy. People want to preach dessert, the gospel of desserts, instead of the gospel of vegetables. They don't want to hear. But Paul says here, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Yes, there's a place for desserts, but there's a place for vegetables. Vegetables have to be eaten before the desserts, right? So we have to first hear about our sin 
before we can hear about the way of salvation to save us from sin. What are we being saved from? The consequences, the penalties of our sin. Therefore, we have to talk about sin. Chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, verse 24. 24, 24 to 25. Acts 24, 24. This is the apostle speaking to Felix. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Let's keep reading. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. What do we have here? We have Felix, who would have known some things from the Old Testament because his wife is a Jewess. And he hears Paul preaching, and he's curious to know why it is that all these Jews are so upset at Paul, why it is that I have this prisoner, because he seems like a, a nice guy. Why is this fellow in prison? He wants to know. So Paul takes the opportunity to preach righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, which means he preached against wickedness. Self-control, which means he preached against self-indulgence. And also the judgment to come. Well, what's going to happen on that day of judgment? What will Jesus do on that day of judgment? Will I be in his favor or not on the day of judgment? These are the things that Paul would have explained to him. And what did Felix do? Paul didn't stop saying these things in spite of the reaction of Felix. Felix did two things. One, he was frightened and sent him away. I'll listen to you at another time. He became frightened. Instead of faith, he was full of fright. Faith, he did not have. Fright, he had. So he said, go away, and I'll call you when it's convenient for me. But then when he did call Paul, what was he trying to get from Paul? A pocket full of money. He wanted a bribe from Paul so that Paul would release him. He wanted a bribe. And did Paul do so? The only thing Paul had was the gospel. Paul did not concede. Paul did not succumb. Paul did not say, let's work out a deal. He didn't do that. The only thing Paul had was the gospel, which shows Paul's fortitude, how strong he was in the faith, which we have to be the same. Now, one more place to confirm that we also are supposed to be this way in terms of preaching repentance. Luke 24, Luke 24, 46 to 47. 
Luke 24, 46. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Luke 46, 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. What is it that we should preach? The work of Christ in verse 46 and the application of that work in verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To all the nations, not only Jews need to repent, but all the Gentiles must repent also. And we are still living in this age when we preach to Gentiles to repent of sin, for forgiveness of sins. Jesus preached against sin. We must also. Another reason that we find that there is this animosity, this disdain, hatred that people have or the people did have toward Christ and they will also have toward us. It has to do with the fact that Christ was not in the ruling class. Christ was not a part of the authority in the nation. He was not a part of that, and he was not even the most powerful member in that ruling class. He was not in the ruling class, and he was not the most powerful, most respected member in that ruling class. He didn't have that. And therefore, it was easy to be threatened by his presence when the crowds of people would listen to him instead of listening to the ruling class. This is also what happened in the book of John. John eleven forty seven to 48. Remember what we read there. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid of everyone believing in him. Chapter 12, 9, 12, verse 9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And we remember 12, 19 says... The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are doing, not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They are afraid that their influence will wane and Jesus will wax. That they are afraid that Jesus will have everyone on his side and while he's preaching against them. They're going to lose their popularity and they're going to lose their pocketbook. They're going to lose the masses and they're going to lose their money. They are afraid of that. Jesus threatens that. So they work against him. Not only is this a problem in the time of Christ, it will also be our problem. It will also be our problem. For example, in Acts 
chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. A couple of examples there. First, Acts chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 40. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. This is what happened to the apostles. 5.40. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. That's the same council we read about in John 11. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were warned by the authorities not to do it, but instead they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And publicly and privately, every day, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't listen. Even after they were punished, they didn't listen. Punished wrongfully, they did not listen. They preached the truth. Now, another example is chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, Stephen. Stephen was not one of the apostles. We're getting closer to you and me. Stephen was not one of the apostles. Chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, the Sanhedrin, the same as Acts, or John 11. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Stephen, not a part of the establishment, not a part of the cabal, not a part of the council, he works against them and they hate him. How about you and me? Will it happen to you and me? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. After describing the word of the cross, which is foolishness to the people of the world and to the authorities of the world, to the wise of the world, he says this in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not many among Christians will you find those who are wise according to worldly standards, mighty according to worldly standards, or noble according to worldly standards. God purposely chooses weak, foolish, despised, and base things, which includes you and me, the common man and his common plight. We are of low rank, of low esteem in the eyes of those of high rank, those who have great wealth and those who have great power, who have great wisdom, at least in their own eyes. We are nothing to them. But God purposely uses us, converts us, and uses us to shame those kinds of men, to shame them, to show that salvation is by His doing, not by anything man deems to be the way of salvation. It's all by God's doing. He nullifies and abolishes everything that man presents to God. They cannot boast before God. We have one more, one more reason to mention now as to why the people, the authorities, and people generally despised Christ and will also despise us. They despised Christ and they also will despise us. Christ identified himself as I am, John 8, 58. He identified himself as one with the Father. I and the Father, we are one. John chapter 10 and verse 30. In John 8, verse 19, 8, 19, he says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 8, 24 I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. John 8, 28 to 29. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, they are despising the authority of God through the messenger of God. They are despising the authority of God through the messenger of God. He identified himself as being deity with the Father, divine just like the Father is, and that the Father sent him into the world with a specific message that they must heed to be saved from their sins. That it was the authoritative, only sure way of salvation. If we do the same, and we are called to do the same, it will happen to us. This same problem will happen to us. 
What is the problem? They will oppose us because we say forthrightly, authoritatively, this is not my word. This is not man's word. This is from the word of God. Don't you call it my word. Don't you call it man's word. Don't you say my opinion, your opinion. Don't say your preference, my preference. Don't say that. It's a matter of the truth of the word of God, the authoritative truth of God. 1 Peter 4.11, Let him who speaks speak as it were the oracles of God. Whoever speaks speaks the oracles of God. That's what he should be speaking. And when he does do so, he is doing it according to 1 Peter 4.11. Hebrews 4.12, Hebrews 4.12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God that we have, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word that we preach to people, God uses to open everyone's heart, to make it open and bare. And one day, God will hold these people accountable. God will hold them accountable. All of us will be held accountable before God. All we have is the Word of God. And when it is delivered, people ought to believe it and repent of sin. Actually, Christ says it in this way, in other words, Luke 10, 16. Luke 10 and verse 16. 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. There's an unbroken chain chain there, unbreakable chain there. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. When we deliver the word of God, they're not merely rejecting us. They are rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ and rejecting God the Father. People like to say, I just disagree with you. I just think you're wrong. Let's just agree to disagree. John 13. John 13, 12. John 13, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is what will happen to us. When we say authoritatively, this is what the Bible says, they will rise up against us.
Ultimately, their hatred is not directed at us. It's directed at God himself. If they despise the messenger of God, they despise the word of God. If they despise the word of God, they despise God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.